Well, good afternoon, all of you. <clears throat> Certainly wonderful to be home. I've done a, an awful lot of traveling in my life, here, there, and everywhere and around the world, and it's exciting sometimes to head out on a trip somewhere, I've noticed over the years, but the very most exciting thing about traveling is coming home. Uh, your own bed, your own surroundings, uh, without the stresses and travel and various things you go through when you do travel. But uh, it's certainly good to be back. I've been confused, though, since I came in Thursday evening. Can't figure out what time it is. The electric went off while it was gone. I had clocks all over the house blinking at me. And then we had fall back and one didn't. So it was, and then the computer and the phone, I didn't trust. I thought they were lying. So I finally typed in current time and found out Utah and Arizona indeed are the same and it was the right time and I didn't get here an hour early today. But anyway, those are my difficulties. I'm sure you have, have your own. I don't think there's a whole lot to say about what's going on on the earth at the moment. It's chaos and confusion and things are getting worse, obviously, as this whole thing proceeds. And I find it interesting, the scriptures we've been going through here, uh, from Isaiah 13 down until the beginning of 24 today, about uh, different countries and the world and what will happen what is happening as we speak. I've been through these scriptures before in the last 26, nearly 27 years, and even prior, but I mean especially in these last times since we learned what we've learned. And uh, though you can see elements of these things happening clearly in the church, they didn't come down to the world quite yet. And now these particular ones are beginning to have an awful lot more meaning as we see uh, trouble descending all around us. I mean, I was just shocked yesterday when someone told me that they went to Bees Market and I think it was prime rib was $45 a pound. I mean, get enough to feed a couple of guests and you're 200 bucks just for meat for a meal. To me, that's just crazy. Of course, there's no inflation. We understand that. But uh, it's getting crazy. Well, that brings us down to chapter 24. And I left off with a comment last week that uh, we've been examining various parts of the world. And some of the analogies deal with the sinful world, especially uh, about Egypt. Babylon, America being the head of Babylon, but Babylon is Satan's whole system of confusion in the world. So there have been messages to various peoples, but also to really all people in that sense. Uh, But chapter 24 brings it to the whole earth. He says, Behold, the Eternal makes the earth empty and makes it waste turns it upside down and scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. This chapter will continue in that vein verse after verse. And Ellen G. White, who was the false prophet of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, 
false prophetess, I guess I should say, uh, used this chapter as her main uh, source of authority to say that all people would die. No one would be left alive. Earth, earth totally desolate. Uh, we'll see that language as we go through this. But she overlooked a few verses, which you'll see as we go through. I won't spend a lot of time on it, but you'll see a few verses in here that say, and few men left. It doesn't say they'll all die, but that was what she got out of this chapter, and what she preached. And of course, then the church picked up some of that uh, by saying that the earth would be burned and uninhabited, and totally burn up after the second resurrection, and then all things be created new, including the orb itself. Uh, there's nothing in the scripture that says it in that way at all, or in fact. I was just reading, for you out on the phone line, The God is my deliverer and my strength in whom I will trust. Uh, but a little mic doesn't hurt either. Maybe he, uh, we figured out a way that we can still be heard here. Anyway, he says, I'll call upon the Eternal who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. And the sorrows of death compassed me, and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. And we have a lot of floods of ungodly men, evil, uh, today, descending upon us. And they can make us afraid. I was talking to someone yesterday in St. George that I know a little bit, and uh, he was talking about these stupid people in Washington and all the problems we're having. And I said, they are not stupid. They're very, very intelligent. They're also very, very evil, and they're taking our country down on purpose. And he says, yeah, I know that. <laughs> he said, I just don't want to admit it. I don't want, I don't want to accept that we're being torn down on purpose. We're pretty much his words back. So he gets it, but he just doesn't want to accept it. But he doesn't have anyone to go to like we do. So we don't have to be afraid. They can make you afraid, but we don't need to be afraid. And that's where our faith in God has to be strong, as David is stating here at the beginning of this chapter, and know that he is the one who is going to save us. He's the one who can take care of these problems. We don't have to be afraid as the world is afraid. In fact, he tells us very clearly not to be fearful. Uh, that he will bring judgment upon those who are fearful. So, fearful is not acceptable to God. Put it that way. Fearful is not acceptable to God. Faith, strength, trust, courage are highly acceptable to God. Now, David recognized that these ungodly men had made him afraid. Uh, it can happen. It is easy to happen. I'm going to put that in here.
account, that'll work. Now, is that close enough to pick up? Let me see if I can raise it. I don't mind sitting here holding it. It's okay. I just squeeze it for security. Well, I have to turn this way. Is, is that okay now? Yeah. Okay, we'll try this then. I'll try to move my Bible over a little bit and get as close as I can. <clears throat> anyway, he's praising God here, who is the one who can deliver him from the fears uh, that have come upon him because of what men were trying to do to him. And recount historically... Uh, he had sons who wanted to kill him. He had uh, people high in his military that wanted to kill him. He had all kinds of people who were after his hide. So that makes you wonder a little. Uh, it can make you wonder a lot if you focus on it. Because there are dangers out there. And our society is getting... You, you can be anywhere and be attacked today, uh, in, the, in a mall, in a fast food restaurant, well, it doesn't make any difference. Anywhere is a dangerous place because there are dangerous people around. And then you have those dangerous ones in government who are doing their level best to kill us all. So there's a lot out there that can be feared, but we need to comprehend how God would have us navigate these dangerous, troublous times. And David's focus was upon God because that's the only one who can deliver you and the only one that cares. So the floods, floods of ungodly men, he says, lots of them, compassed him about and made him afraid. The sorrows of the grave compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. But we realize that life is short. Life is uh, precarious. It's easy to die. There are lots of ways to do it. <laughs> and people who want to kill you uh, brings a concern to you. In my distress, what did I do? I called upon the Eternal and cried to my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him, even to his ears. No one else is going to listen to you. Nobody else cares, but God does. He cared very much about David, and he cares very much about every one of us whom he has called. So he is very, very involved in our lives, and there's where our focus needs to be. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was angry. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. Now he takes this into a prophetic uh, context. It wasn't just about David, but it was about those of us who are here at the end when God is about to shake the earth. And we do have floods of dangerous men out there who 
would kill us if they could. But he, he says, this makes God angry. God is very angry right now at the leaders of this world. Klaus Schwab just announced that God is dead, but the WEF is gaining divine powers. Or pretty much the words he used. I might not have quoted them exactly, but that was the thought. Uh, and we know Satan is enhancing the strength of these people uh, through demons, through his spirit. And yes, indeed, they are getting divine powers. Not divine from God, but divine from satanic powers, which is not divine in terms of holiness and righteousness, but in terms of power and ability to uh, pass information along and to have those people react according to his will and ways. But let's remember that what they are doing out there, what's going on, has made God very angry, and he's about to bring all of this to a screeching halt. But it's according to his plan and his way, and to allow them a certain amount of time, times of the Gentiles, 42 months, where they will take power and strength on a worldwide basis. But that will cause God then to react to what Satan does. We don't fear Satan, we fear God. And Satan is the one who's running this whole thing that we see before us. Because God was angry. He bowed the heavens also and came down and darkness was under his feet. So Christ is going to come down. Uh, he rode upon a cherub and flew. He did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. So, as he brings destruction, there's going to be darkness, and the moon will not give its light or the sun and so on, as other descriptions of the day of the Lord show. At the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed, hailstones and coals of fire. He thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Yes, he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and he shot out lightnings and discomfited them. He's going to scare them to death. Then the channels of waters were seen, and upon the foundations of the world were discovered at your rebuke, O Eternal, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. So nothing is going to be hidden from him. He can reveal the foundations of the earth. He can reveal the bottoms of the ocean. He can stir things around. He's done it before, and he's going to do it some more. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters, or peoples, uh, many peoples that are out there to destroy us. I saw a t-shirt recently that says, I think I'll stay inside. It's just too peoply out there. Uh, lots of people around, and they don't all mean good. But we can't run hide either, because we have to be a witness to the world before this is all done. Now, we're going to run, yes, but we won't hide. We'll stand on the mountain and proclaim God. Who's behind us? He's called telling us about it right here. Who's behind us? It's God. You got God for you? Who can be against you? Took me out of many peoples. He delivered me from my strong enemy. 
and from them which hated me, for they were too strong for me. We have no way of standing up against what is coming. There's, there's just no way. They're going to take over the whole world, and if you don't accept the mark of the beast, you will die. It's just that simple. But if you trust in God, then he will take you and spare you from those who are too strong for you. You know, how long would we last around here if we just did our little barricade committee and we all checked our powder and be sure it's dry and have our guns all loaded and uh, wait for them to come? They'd overpower us in ten minutes, if not sooner. There's just no way. But the one we look to can protect us from all of it. So, what's to worry? They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Eternal was my stay. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Now, when you're put out in a large place, there's a lot of space and space around you, which means freedom, liberty to move. Uh, if you're in a small place, you're hiding and cowering in the closet, and in a small place, you don't have much room to maneuver. But God is going to put us in a large place with plenty of space to do what we need to do. And the large place, then, is a safe place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. <clears throat> and that's the theme we need to, I think, dwell on more than perhaps we have, is how much God delights in us. If you're the apple of his eye, he delights in you. Uh, sometimes we feel maybe all alone. Sometimes we feel timid and afraid. But his focus is on those who are following and obeying him. He's not going to be focused on anyone else except for their destruction. He's going to be, follow, he's going to be focused on us, just as we are to focus on him. He rewards me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, has he recompensed me. Now, some people would take off on that verse and say, yeah, but David was a sinner and he did this and he did that and he did the other things. Yes, he did those things. And yes, God caused a certain penalty on him. He paid consequences for some of the things he did. Yet, on the other hand, it's very clear God forgave him and he moved on. So we should take a great deal of hope for that because none of us have gone without sin. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God and would then therefore have things to worry about. Except that he is willing to forgive. And he is more willing to forgive us than sometimes we are for willing to forgive ourselves. We go on thinking, oh yeah, but I've been bad, or I've done this, or I've done that, and I shouldn't have done that, and maybe God's holding it against me. God does not bear grudges. If we repent, he forgives. He moves on. And we should do the same. No matter what we've done, no matter what we've been, we repent of that, and don't do that anymore. And God forgives, and we can still be his delight. Because David has sinned pretty greatly, and yet it says right here in this chapter, God delighted in him. So once God 
moves past our sins, we can move into a place where He delights in us. And that's exactly where the church is right now. He had delighted in it to a degree, and then we kind of started going off the rails, and our focus was not as much on Him as it should have been, and more on the world, and more what was happening in the world. And we began to kind of lose our focus, and He lost His delight, and then He spewed us out. Now if we repent, and as we repent, he will again delight in us. And we have so many scriptures that say he's going to turn his face, which has been from us, back to us. And that is exciting to realize. And we're reading right here in this chapter that he's done that before. He did it with David. David was just as bad a sinner as there was. In fact, some of the things he did are things that are beyond what... I'd say most people do in their lives. It's not too often that you take another man's wife and have a child by her and then kill her husband. You know, that's, that's taken it beyond what most people do. And he suffered the consequences of that. But God forgave him. And he went on with life. He enjoyed killing way too much. You know, David was a man who, if his hand found to do it, he did it with his might. And if it was spilling blood, he just spilled all he could spill. Uh, I mean, he didn't quit fighting until it got too dark to see an enemy, was his approach. Uh, but that was went beyond what God would have had him do. Yes, there was a time back then when you did fight in war. And when he killed Goliath, that was a time to fight and war and kill. And God blessed Israel for that and blessed David and helped him in battle. It's just that once he got bloodlust going in his mind and his emotions, uh, he went beyond what God intended by far. And there was a penalty then involved in that. And he had to repent of that. And then he had to tell Solomon... I was going to build a temple. God had me scheduled to do that. And now I can't do it because I got too bloody. I enjoyed killing too much. That must have been hard for him to choke out to Solomon. You're going to do it, son. God's not going to let me. But his attitude was just marvelous. He knew from God's own mouth that he would not be allowed to build that temple. And yet he said, well, I can't build it, but I sure can gather the stuff up. And he began gathering everything needed to build a temple, to do everything he could, because he still loved God. And because God had given him a penalty, he was not going to allow that to destroy his relationship with God. Oh, I've been chastened. Okay, I guess I better straighten up and get on with my service to God. His servants were even utterly amazed when the child that he had illicitly uh, died. That he, after having fasted until it died, he got up and brushed off his clothes and got back to work. They said, aren't you going to mourn? Why should I mourn? He died. Now it's time to get back to work and serve God. <laughs> you, you see why David's going to be king of all Israel in the world tomorrow? He wasn't just back then. 
But the attitudes he had were just incredible. Uh, you fall down, you get up. <laughs> God knocks you down, you get up. And you go on. Uh, that's the kind of attitude God wants to find in us. That we serve him and we've been knocked down. He spewed us out, knocked us flat. So a lot gave up. A lot quit. We can't. We gotta be like David. We gotta stand up and say, okay, God, now that I've recovered a little, thanks for the spanking, I'm gonna get on with it. That's just the way that it is. And God hears that, and He loves that. He loves repentance. He loves to see His children walk in joy before Him. Just like you do with your children. When they get all out of sorts and they make some mistakes and they become a pain in the neck, uh, it's frustrating. But then when they get over it and they're sweet and loving and joyous again, you delight in them. You can't help yourself. You simply delight in them. You know, 30 minutes ago I was ready to wring your neck. Now I'm, you're my favorite kid. Uh, that's the way God is. So he loves to see us change our attitudes and move forward. He just loves it. He delights in it. Verse 27, For you will save the afflicted people, but will bring down high looks. For you will light my candle. The eternal my God will enlighten my darkness. For by you I have run through a troop, and by my God have I leaped over a wall. Something he couldn't do on his own, but with God's help he could. So I wanted to preface this uh, because scattered throughout chapter 24 and in these next few chapters, there is the direness of what is coming upon us, but there's also the encouragement that God is there with us. And I thought to review that uh, story, one little story of David, would be good as we face this. <clears throat> so he said he's going to turn the world upside down, make it waste, and scatter abroad the inhabitants. They're just going to be scattered. And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest. He's not going to just com confine this to one aspect of it, but with everybody. As with the servant, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the taker of usury, so with the giver of usury to him. So it doesn't matter who you are, how high in society you are, whether you're the base or whether you're in the elite, as they like to call themselves, it isn't going to make a bit of difference. This calamity that's coming is going to hit the whole earth. Everybody. God has said it, believe it, it's coming. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. Now this is the earth. This is not just Israel. This is not just Gentile countries. This is the whole earth. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. They're going to have sorrowy times upon them. 
The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof. Because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, and broken the everlasting covenant. God had an everlasting covenant with Adam and Eve. He's had one with several other people. He has one with us today. And the world has turned completely away from God in basically every respect. And this upsets him. The earth is defiled under the inhabitants thereof. In other words, it's their problem. Uh, they're the ones who have turned away. <clears throat> Therefore has the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. doesn't say they're all gone, just a few left. I think that is quantifiable if you look at Daniel, which I've mentioned many times, where it appears Christ will come and judge a hundred million. Out of eight and a half billion, that's few men left, really. That's a very small percentage that are left, if that's what this has reference to. The new wine mourns, the wine languishes, all the merry-hearted do sigh. You can't say, well, let's go have a few drinks and relax and everything will be okay. Uh, it won't be that way. The mirth of Tabrez ceases, and noise of them that rejoice ends. The joy of the harp ceases. Nobody's going to feel like singing or dancing or even drinking alcohol. They're going to be in such dire straits that nothing will appease, nothing will help, nothing will bring relief. They shall not drink wine with a song. I'm not going to sing and dance. Strong drink shall be bitter to them that drink it. In other words, you might drink it, thinking it might give you a little help and relief, relax you. No, it's bitter. Uh, everything is going to be bitter, and nothing will bring any kind of relief. <clears throat> the city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no man may come in. A calamitous time, dangerous time, so people don't go in and out of houses. They're scared to go through a door inside or outside, because it will be that dangerous. There is a crying for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. Crying for wine, still thinking it might be a help, but no. And if you do drink it, it doesn't bring relief, as has already been stated. In the city is left, is left desolation, and the gate is smitten with destruction. So, gates of the cities open, open prey for anyone who is coming to destroy or take or kill you for what you got. When thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, thou shalt be as the shaking of an olive tree, and as the gleaning grapes when the vintage is done. There aren't many olives left on a tree after you shake it. There are not many grapes left after you come through and cut all the grapes. There's a few hiding out here and there behind some leaves uh, that are hard to find. But that's the way men are going to be. Not too many left. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the eternal they shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore, glorify you the eternal 
in the fires, even the name of the Lord God of Israel in the coast of the sea. That is a plea to turn to God. And some people will start maybe kind of looking for God during this calamitous, terrible time. And by the time the millennium starts, they'll begin to get on the same page that maybe I ought to pay more attention to God. Because that's what this is all about, is to get people to get their minds off themselves, their minds off politics, their minds off war, their minds off pleasures, their minds off Disneyland, their minds on nothing but God. That's what he wants, is turn to me with your whole heart. That's the key. From the uttermost part of the eternal of the earth have we heard songs, even glory to the righteousness. But I said, my leanness, my leanness, woe to me. What good is it going to do to turn to God when I'm starving to death? There'll be a lot of people who have that attitude. What good is God? He's not helping me. I cried out and nothing happened. I'm still starving to death. Uh, maybe a lot, little like the widow there with Elijah who said, well, I'm, I, I can't really feed you. I've got just a little bit left and I'm gathering some sticks and I'll cook one last meal and my son and I are going to lay down and die because we're starving to death. And she had no hope. She had no, nothing to look to. She was in Israel. She knew of God and heard of God. But How's God going to help me? We're in a time of famine, and this is all I've got left, and we're going to eat and die. She had made that statement. She had made that compromise with death in her own mind and emotions. This is just the way it's going to be. So there are going to be a lot of people in that condition. Uh, cry out to God. That didn't help. I'm starving to death. Woe to me. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Uh, yes, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. They're destroying our food as we speak, burning our food processing plants, destroying the land, destroying the transportation of the food. And all we can say is the dealers have dealt treacherously. They've taken it all away. How many of you can afford to eat prime rib every day these days? Not at 45 bucks a pound, and that's going to get worse. A whole lot worse. So how are you going to eat? God says if you'll turn to him and come to the place that he's prepared, you will have milk and wine without money. And he says that of the Jerusalem that is to be restored soon, there will be much men and cattle there. So there'll be no uh, shortage of beef, and you'll have milk and wine without cost. Hmm, that sounds like a pretty good place to be these days. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. Now that's a contrast to us not needing to fear because we believe the words of God. So there's nothing to fear if we do our part. And it shall come to pass that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. 
they'll be scared of this, and so they'll start running that way and fall in a different pit. And he that comes up out of the midst of the pit shall be taken in the snare. For the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth do shake. No safe place, in other words. Wherever you run, wherever you think you might find a moment of safety, it turns out that it's not there. There's another scripture that says something about if you lean your hand on the wall, the snake will bite you, and then if you do something else, something else just as bad happens. It's kind of the same thought here. <clears throat> the earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean, dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. Now, it's not dissolved like you put chemicals on something and cause it to totally dissolve. Uh, but it is the condition of being unusable, becoming uninhabitable, polluted, destroyed, ruined, wrecked uh, by all the things that are going on. So, aren't our systems breaking down? Isn't our infrastructure breaking down? Isn't world peace breaking down? These things are beginning to happen. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall be removed like a cottage, and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. We have a lot of people in this country that say, yeah, we're going to go through a recession, and this one's going to be bad, and it's going to get worse. But if you have enough gold and silver and ammo, uh, you'll survive, and you'll be able to come out on the other side and be good and healthy and wealthy. No. That's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says there's no answer. It's going to reel to and fro like a drunkard. And drunkards that reel to and fro usually wind up on their face, and uh, they're not able to get up. <laughs> it's not going to rise again. This, this problem is not going to go away, in other words. The only way it will ever rise again is under the leadership and the rulership of Christ. It's not going to get up on its own and fix its problems and think everything's going to be all right. It shall come to pass in that day, this is a prophecy, that the Eternal shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. The elite think they're going to go into their bunkers and they'll come out and be okay. Uh-uh. There's no place you can hide. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered up in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison, and after many days shall they be visited. So they're going to go through trial, trouble, tribulation, death, just like everybody else, and then God is going to bring down his visitation upon them, because he hates high looks, vanity, ego, and those who are presumptuous. Then the moon shall be confounded, and the sun ashamed, when the Eternal of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. <coughs> he gets back to the answer of the problem. He's going to take care of it. And he'll reign from Zion and Jerusalem. Now it says before his ancients gloriously. This, this moves over then into the millennium. When he is, he'll come here and rule over his 10% remnant 
in a lesser way, but then he is going to, in this context, take over the entire earth and reign before his ancients. I think that means Moses and Abraham and Enoch and Elijah and Samuel and on and on it goes. Read Hebrews 11. Uh, they'll be back. First resurrection, in other words. So this is indeed a very end-time uh, prophecy. So when the earth is shaken like this, and he says at the end of Haggai, same thing that he does many other places, how he's going to shake the earth uh, again. So this is referring to that period of time, just before his return in glory to uh, the Mount of Olives. Then he takes a different uh, view right after that chapter is over, saying, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. So in the middle of all this death and destruction and the earth being shaken like a, uh, a chicken, we can call out to God and he will hear us. For you have made of a city a heap, of a defense city a ruin, a palace of strangers to be no city. It shall never be built. He's going to shake this earth. He's going to shake the cities down. And they're not going to be built back. Bear in mind, God hates cities. Now, he, he doesn't hate all cities. He doesn't hate Jerusalem, for instance. But if you see the amount of people in the New Jerusalem, 144,000 plus angels and so on, and it's uh, 12,000 miles cubed, I think it is, uh, that's very, very few people per square mile. In fact, there's more square miles than people. So God doesn't like people to live too close together. He says there in Isaiah 5, Woe to those that build city to city and field to field. Not, not even the fields need to be joined. There needs to be space between people's fields so they have elbow room. And there's very little of that left unless you're out in the desert somewhere. Today, it's all been pretty well crowded together. No, it won't be that way. So, he's going to start renewing the earth <laughs> by destroying it. In that sense, uh, a lot of these things that we've built are going to be gone. Therefore shall the strong people glorify you. The city of the terrible nations shall fear you. So the world is going to fear God. The strong people will glorify God. They will not be living in fear. They will be living in strength and power and the light of Christ. And it's the nations themselves that are going to fear. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. We have scriptures that we can recall where he says he'll be a protective covering over us to to uh, us to protect us from all this that's coming. We have nothing to worry about, nothing to fear, except 
compromised faith that allows fear to begin to come into our minds. And we need to stay away from those things that cause a fearful attitude and go to He who gives a powerful, uh, secure attitude. That's where we need to be. He is there to take care of us. You shall bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place. Even the heat with the shadow of a cloud, the branch of the terrible ones shall be brought low. And he says, I'll, I'll protect you with a bubble over you, but then the heat's going to destroy. I don't think this allows for any tent sitting. This requires us to be well over on God's side and not compromising at all with the world. Because you're going to get knocked off the wall and you're going to get knocked off in the wrong direction if you're not down on God's side. <coughs> and in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the leaves, of fat things full of marrow, there's meat, of wines on the leaves well refined. So in all this destruction, God's going to take care of some people, he says. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. So the whole earth is going to be in deep trouble except for all the righteous people. He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears on all faces. And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from uh, off all the earth, for the Eternal has spoken it. When he promises us in Revelation 21, no more tears, no more crying, no more death, etc. Uh, it's an echo of this right here. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. The one that's doing these wonderful things in the face of all the terrible things that are going on. He can, he has two hands. He can do good here while he does horrible things here. And he can choose which is where. Uh, you have the little, where's the, the little thimbles with the P in there and they try to hide the P from you and you're trying to guess where it is. God knows. He knows exactly where everything is and he can take care of this while he wrecks that. <coughs> what a God. This is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For in this mountain shall the hand of the eternal rest, and Moab shall be trodden down under him, even as straw is trodden down to the dunghill. And he shall spread forth his hands in the midst of them, as he that swims spreads forth his hands to swim. And he shall bring down their pride together with the spoils of their hands. So, contrast. Someone who will not obey God, and someone who will, and the difference that occurs. In the fortress of the high fort of your wall shall he bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground, even to the dust. 
This clock says three o'clock. It's two. Okay, this one didn't fall back. Well, I've got a little time left. I wanted to get through chapter 26 today, so let's do it. And that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Now, all the cities have been falling. But in Judah, you can say we have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open you the gates, that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. God's going to open it up for those who will obey and serve him. Now, this, this is beginning is with the remnant of the church where he begins these blessings. Then as these end-time events and shaking the earth come to a conclusion, he's going to open up salvation to everybody. Anyone who will come. So that shows you he can be very, very angry and he can do an awful lot of destruction and then he can absolutely change his attitude and say, okay, anybody out there Want some holiness and some righteousness and some blessings and some food now? Wow. Come on. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. That's what it all comes down to is we are facing formidable times and we need to trust God. And perfect Love casts out fear. If we have the right kind of love for God, the right kind of love for man, we will not have fear. We will not be fearful. We will be thankful. We will reside in his power. We will simply trust him. And trust casts out fear. Trust you in the eternal forever. For in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. You just simply can't go wrong by throwing all your cards in God's pocket. For he brings down them that dwell on high, the lofty city, he lays it low. He lays it low even to the ground. He brings it even to the dust. The foot shall tread it down, even the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. So the cities in this analogy are going to be like dust under your feet, completely broken down. The way of the just is uprightness. You, most upright, do weigh the path of the just. He thinks about us. He watches us. He weighs our path. Which way is this one headed? Is this one on the path to love, to righteousness, to closeness to me? Or is this one on the headed the wrong direction. Yes, in the way of your judgment, O eternal, have we waited for you. The desire of our soul is to your name and to the remembrance of you. Now, we are in a position right now where the world is in great danger. Uh, there are a lot of people who recognize that nuclear war could break out, that Hundreds of millions of people, billions, could be incinerated. Uh, they recognize those dangers. They realize Ukraine could become a worldwide war. Uh, they're concerned about all these things. And they worry a lot, and they're afraid a lot. Or like the fellow I talked to yesterday, I don't want to 
I don't want to face it. I know you're right. I don't want to face it. There are a lot of people like that. We have hope. We have God to wait for. Now, I've noticed in the Bible, and I've noticed in life, sometimes God lets us get out there where we're right on the end of our rope, clinging to the little knot at the end and barely hanging on. And he often does that with people in various circumstances, has in the past where he only delivered at the last moment, at the last chance. He's testing us. He's trying us. He's seeing if our trust is real. He's seeing if we really believe in him. So, it's going to be that way now. It's getting there. Don't you sometimes feel like you're kind of beginning to get at the end of the rope? And that if God doesn't deliver soon, you're going to be in the middle of all this death and destruction? Yeah, we can begin to feel that way. But we can never turn loose the rope, A. And B, we have to be strong and trust in Him. Of course, that reminds you of the old joke we've had going around for years and years about the guy hanging over the edge of the cliff says, oh God, if you'll save me, I'll do this and this and this for you. And God says, well, you believe in me, turn loose the rope. <laughs> it's an old woman around. I didn't tell it. I didn't intend to go through it all. But where is our trust? Where is our faith? Do we believe he's going to save us like he says he will? Now, he says he will, doesn't he? He says that. How much do we believe it? And there's the difference between total trust and a certain amount of fear. And we all have to deal with that. Because you look and you read and there's fearful things. And then you read this and there's some positive things where God says, don't worry about it, I'll take care of you, just trust me. Okay. I think that comes down <clears throat> to it in a lot of aspects of life. I was just reading the prayer requests on a site this morning, uh, not ours, but someone's, and all these people with many, many different kinds of problems, cancers and heart problems and this and that, and they're going to the hospitals, they're going to the doctors, they're getting stents put in their heart, they're getting all kinds of things, uh, having cancers removed, this and that, and, and asking in some of their write-ups for us to pray that God will guide the surgeon's hand. That has always bothered me. I, I, I can't pray that way. When I read the Bible, God says, I am your healer. Be anointed, trust me, I will take care of you. And yet I see so many, many, many people who claim to be trusting God, who trust Him up to the point that their life, their ongoing health might be threatened, and suddenly they turn loose the rope and say, God help the doctor. God don't help me, God help the doctor. And this bothers me. 
you know, if I'm his, he can determine when I die. Why does it matter how long I live on this earth? Why does it matter? If you're faithful and righteous to God, before God, and you die at age 24 of heart problems, car accident, whatever, why is it such a big deal? You're faithful to God. You'll be in His kingdom. Would living another 50 years here on this earth matter? Not a lot. It just gets worse and worse as it goes on. Uh, so, why does it matter when we die? I have watched a lot of people die. I've gone to hospitals and watched them lay there and die. When they had all kinds of treatments that caused all kinds of problems, and if they did live, it wasn't too happy a life thereafter for the most part. They're on eight or ten drugs and this or that and the other thing from then on. And maybe they, maybe they helped you a little. Maybe you'll live another six months or three years or whatever before the cancer comes back, you know. Is it worth it? Why not just trust God entirely and implicitly? Because you know it is appointed to all men once to die. It's just that I understand that, but what if it's me? <laughs> you know, what if it's me that's dying? Well, then I'm going to try to find some answer for this. Now, God gave us herbs and he gave us different things here on the earth that he said we could use that could be of help. And Isaiah even recommended a fig poultice and so on. So there are things that God doesn't mind us using. But he said Asa died because he sought the physicians when he was diseased in his feet. And I think of that one sometimes, whether it's my feet or my head or my heart or whatever. What difference does it make? God can heal me. But then there's a time when he decides to let me die. Now, if the good die young, I'm going to live forever, you know, is the saying. Um... But he knows when he's finished with us on this earth, whether we've been tested enough, tried enough, gone through enough, learned enough, overcome enough, that we'll be in his kingdom, then what difference does it make whether we live another year or two or three except for our pleasure? Don't take me to a hospital. Just don't do it. You know what people do when they see somebody fall over? Call the ambulance. Get them to the hospital. I don't want to go to the hospital. Drag me over and throw me on my bed and anoint me. And we'll leave it up to God. I've already lived a long time. And I might live another year or five or twenty. I don't know, normally speaking. But what difference does it make? If we're going to be in the resurrection an instant later, the next moment of consciousness, you're in the resurrection and flying up to the wedding supper, why cling to this? <laughs> My suppers aren't quite as good as that one's going to be. They're okay, and I like them, and I eat too much. 
But life on this earth is not meant to be the kingdom of God in heaven forever. It's a trial. It's a period of time when we go through all kinds of mental and emotional agony and trying to trust God and love God and love each other and not doing too well at any of it, up and down. It's a trial. It's frustrating. But we have within us a very strong desire to live. And that's what takes over when people get sick. Oh, i got to live. I've got to live. can't die, so I'll do whatever they want me to do so I can live. That's, that's not the right approach. The right approach is I belong to God. I'm his servant. I'm his slave. I'm his son. I'm his brother. I'm his sister. I'm a potential bride of Christ. Uh, I'm going to trust in him. And as long as he wants me to live on this earth, fine. But if he's ready for me to go, even more fine, really. Now, I can say that at my age, I might not have said it quite the same way at 24. Uh, but it was already there. I'll tell you that. It was already there at that age. Because when I was eight, nine years old, I was being taught that when you get sick, you don't go to the Seminole Hospital. You call Pasadena and get an anointing cloth. That's what I was taught. And I saw my brothers and sisters brought back from death itself. I think I had polio when I was about 10, 11, 12, whenever, whenever it was. My parents thought I did, but we never went to the doctor to find out. They called Pasadena, got a cloth, anointed me, and I still remember that vividly, that I was having terrible dreams, terrible nightmares, terrible pain. Uh, it was the kind that usually kills you, not the kind that cripples you. There were two kinds of polio like that. And I remember it well. But I was taught early in life that it was up to God whether I lived or died. And I've never gotten away from that, brethren, and I don't intend to ever. Because I've seen my children healed. I've seen other people healed. I've anointed people and seen them healed immediately. I've also anointed people and seen them die. Because that's God's judgment. Now, if he healed them, it was apparent. God gave me that confidence. I've told you the story. The very first person I anointed after I'd barely been ordained at age barely 22 and was being sent to Florida, and I stopped to visit relatives on the way. And I had a little niece there. Well, she's actually my cousin. First cousin. She's just young. And she had been laying in bed for a long, long time, hadn't been able to have a bowel movement, all froze up, nothing was working, and she was in terrible misery and pain, and I anointed her, first anointing I'd ever done, I was half scared, walked out, about three, four, five minutes later I looked out and she was out in the yard just having a good time, running around playing. I don't know how many times they flushed the toilet, but whatever it took, uh, she got over it immediately. And I knew then that God backs his word up. And he can choose to let us die if that is his will. 
But why would I want to go against his will? If it's his will to heal me for whatever reason, wonderful for my viewpoint. If he chooses to let me die, then wonderful from his viewpoint and mine, because he takes pleasure in the death of his saints. Now, if he takes pleasure in it, why hasn't he killed us all? <laughs> Not a contradiction. We're still alive because he has a use and a purpose for us. But if we fulfill that use and that purpose, then why not go to sleep? You know, I enjoy going to sleep, don't you? I don't enjoy it much when I can't go to sleep. But when I can, ah, oh, wonderful sleep. And if it's dreamless, so much the better. That's what you get underneath the tumbleweeds. Dreamless sleep until the resurrection. I didn't finish this chapter. But he is going to swallow up death with life and no more tears. And we'll say, this is our God. And I'm just going to have to wait to finish this until next, next week. Where am I? Where, where did I stop here? Eight? We've waited for you. That's what I'm saying. The desire of our soul is to your name, to the remembrance of you. With my soul have I desired you in the night. Yes, with my spirit within me will I seek you early. That's what he says we'll do. Is we'll seek him early when the troubles begin to come. For when your judgments are, are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. So his whole goal is to turn this evil world into righteousness. And then everything will be fine. Let favor be shown to the wicked. Yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the eternal. Some people are just going to be tough nuts to crack. That's all there is to it. Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see. But they shall see and be ashamed for their envy at the people. Yea, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. So God is going to, he's going to have to take this to dire circumstances to get people to even begin to wake up. Lord, you will ordain peace for us. For you also have worked all our works in us. So he's been working in us, working through us, and he's going to reward us for our patience and our trust and faith in him. O Lord our God, other lords beside you have had dominion over us, but by you only will we make mention of your name. We've had some pretty wretched ones rule over us. We've got some pretty wretched ones right now who are ruling over us. Totally evil men. Not stupid, evil and they have in mind to destroy the American nation. That's hard to grasp. It's not something I want to face. I love this country. I love the beauty of it. I love, to some degree, even how we used to be able to live 50, 60, 70 years ago that I remember. And things have gotten worse year by year. And I don't want to accept the fact that America is done. But it is. It's over. And the punishments are coming uh, faster and faster. 
You can almost buy a cow for what you have to buy and pay a roast for today. I'm serious. I hadn't thought of that. I paid two or three hundred dollars for a living animal. And now you pay that for one little piece of prime rib. It's sick. You have increased, verse 15, the nation, O eternal. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You had removed it far into all ends of the earth. You're going to be taken captive all over the earth. <clears throat> Lord, in trouble have they visited you. They poured out a prayer when they, your chastening was upon them. Some people are going to pray, aren't they? There are some people who still admit that there may be a God somewhere, and they'll pray. It won't mean a whole lot because they're not going to change. Like as a woman with child that draws near the time of her de delivery is in pain and cries out in her pains, so have we been in your sight, O Eternal. He's been watching us go through this. The, the pains have gotten worse and worse as the decades have crowded up here over 30 years. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. The women strain when the when it hits, but all they've done is pass gas. That's the way God looks at us. You've been trying to bring forth Christ. You've been trying to be bring Him forth, as it says in Isaiah seven. We will do, but all we can do is pass gas. We have not worked any deliverance in the earth. Neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. He's describing right now. We've been in pain, wanting to be delivered. Hasn't happened. Can't do anything that means anything. And there's no deliverance, and the inhabitants of the world have still not fallen. They're about to, but it still hasn't happened. So you're in a real tough position. That's what we're in. A tough position. Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, you that dwell in dust. For your dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Christ died, and in his death is the chance of resurrection. Come, my people, enter you into your chambers. And shut the doors about you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. Here's a call, just like in Haggai. Come, let's get our minds off of our fine homes and get them on building your temple. That's what needs to be done. That's what the goal and the purpose is, is to do the work of God. And he says it's getting bad all the destruction has not been unleashed quite yet. Enter into your safe place. Now, this is coming up soon because the inhabitants of the earth are about to fall. This thing is getting closer and closer. And does not he say in Jeremiah 50 that they will come asking where Zion is just ahead of the Assyrian army? So there's a critical time there at the end of the rope 
where you do turn loose, well, the guy hanging there says, is there anybody else up there? God isn't going to help me. Is there anybody else? No, you turn loose and let God do what God will do. That's ultimate faith. For behold, the Eternal comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. They won't even take time to bury them. They'll just die and be laying there. That's it. Because nobody has any way to take care of anything under these circumstances. So he tells us, enter your chamber, trust me, I'll take care of you, do my work, build my temple, build my city, and then when they take it over, flee desire. But we'll be in a place of safety before that, with a fire around us, with a shield over us, God keeping us from the destruction of the world, who will try to destroy us, while we build his temple. And when that's done, he's going to let the inhabitants of the earth defile it. And then we're to go to the ultimate place of safety in Zion and be protected there until this is over. So, yes, the earth is going to be shaken and most people die and few men left. But God is going to preserve and protect the few who will obey him. So there is great hope and we need to trust entirely upon him with strong faith. He asks if he'll find faith when he returns. And the reason he asks is because there's going to be very, very little of it. And he will only find it in those who are willing to say, this is what he said he will do. I believe it. I'm going to serve him, and I know it's going to come. Simply believe God. He's already opened our eyes to see him, to see what he's doing. Now we just have to believe him and not worry about what the world or Satan is doing, but to trust God to take care of us. Uh, that's the message woven through these chapters today all the way, is don't fear men, fear God, and everything will be all right.